It is 2023, officially, and to me, this 42-year-old man, that's pretty crazy. I know some of you all think, man, life is moving fast, and I, I agree. Some of you are probably thinking, man, life can just slow down a little bit. But it's not going to, so we, we keep moving forward. We keep moving forward, and like uh, it's been said already, it is a new year, and we have lots to think about as we approach the new year. And so before we do that, I'd like to just get started with prayer. I ask the Lord to bless our time this morning as we go to His Word, and as I attempt to preach what I believe God has for us this year. Let's pray. Father, this is your church. For those of us, Lord, who have put our faith in you and put our trust in you, Lord, you have called us. You have brought us who were far away from you, near to you. You have done so many things that are amazing and are unfathomable and are mind-blowing. You've done so much for us, God, and you've brought us together, but not to the end of us just being sin-free, but unto your purposes. I pray, Lord, that as we, as a church, approach the next year, that your purposes, your plans, your endeavors, would be at the forefront of our minds. I pray, God, that your word would be received with open hearts. I pray, Lord, that there would be hearts of worship stirred today, minds, Lord, inclined and undistracted by the events of later today, hearts softened, hearts that are in line with what you love, love that you love, hate what you hate. God, only you can do this. So we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I realized that with, with the new year, it doesn't always translate the same for everybody. Right? For some, for some, a new year comes with a lot of different expectations. For, for some, it's a fresh start, a clean slate, a way to realign goals, a way to, a way to reestablish a new me, right? New year, new you. For some, others though, it's not quite as shiny. We don't look at it, some of us don't look at it quite so positively. For some, a new year can actually bring a lot of anxiety. Some may see that the way the world has been going for the last few years and think, wow, what is 23 going to bring? What will go on in our government? Will there be a recession? How will that affect my business? How will that affect my family? What strand of virus will hit us this year? Some of us are just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Will this be the year that Christian liberty is taken away from us like it is currently in Canada and other countries around the world? And some of you might be saying, well, I wasn't really that anxious, but I am now. Regardless, though, of what your heart brings to the room today, no matter what your perspective is for the new year, whether it's hopeful, whether it's anxious, whether it's indifferent, my hope, my hope is that today each of us will be encouraged. Encouraged as we see some very particular truths, truths that are meant to ground us, truths that are meant to establish us, and truths that are meant to send us. Truth from God's word that should create a paradigm shift, I hope, in the way that we view the year ahead. Namely, that we as a body, we as a body, that as we begin to plan for the year ahead, that we would see God's plan for 2023 first and foremost. That we would see the hope of God's calling, the great and glorious hope of God's calling, and then in that align our plans with his. Not ask him to align his with ours. 
This is my main point this morning. If you have a handout, and if you don't, there is a stack in the table here in the back. Feel free to get up and grab one. This is my main point this morning, that we should see God's call and align our plans or our goals with His. In fact, the, the title of today's message is New Year, Same Calling. New Year, Same Calling. And we will be doing something a bit different, meaning we won't be looking at one specific text today. Rather, we are going to do, take on the entire book, or at least most of the book of Ephesians. Ambitious, I know, for 45 minutes. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We will start there. We're going to go through this book, clearly not verse by verse, but we are going to go through it section by section. Section by section, taking more of like a 5,000 foot view of the whole book. We want to see from this book the flow of thought. There's a flow of thought that Paul had for the church in Ephesus. It was a, a flow of thought that he wanted to take them through as they considered who they were or who they are, or who we are in Christ. As we go through the book, what I'll be doing is I'll be giving us things to consider. Things to consider, things to ponder, things to meditate on from this book. And my hope, again, is I don't want to tell you what to think. I don't want to tell you what to do with your plans for 2023, but rather, my hope is that inspired by the Spirit, I hope that there's truths from this book that will lay a foundation for you by which you would stack your plans for this year on. May we go into this year, 2023, building our plans not on the sand of the world, but on the rock-solid truths of Jesus Christ. Our first section of Ephesians is chapter 1, 1 through 14. And the first thing that we are called by Paul to consider is the purpose and the lavishness of God's grace towards us in Christ. The first thing I want us to consider and ponder is the purpose and the lavishness of God's grace towards us in Christ. Paul begins this letter starting out with an introduction of who he is. Namely, he is an apostle. Basically, that just means he's one who is sent. He's a sent one. It's passive, meaning it's done to him. He did not send himself. This is not a self-proclaimed title that he gave himself. He did not call himself apostle, but he says it was by the will of God. It was by the will of God that Paul be sent by Jesus as one of Jesus' personal apostles. We will see later that Paul considers this a great blessing, to be someone who's called to be someone who's called by God unto the purpose for him, the purpose of apostleship, a calling he does not take lightly, a calling he gives his life for. In fact, we know if we know Paul's ministry from the book of Acts and from his letters, we follow that his aim, his only aim is now to live in accordance with who he now is in Christ. So then he moves on to let them he moves on to let the church in Ephesus and us know just how blessed they are in Christ and how called they are. He's called, they're called. They're called, we're called. He begins to tell the body, this body of Christians, they too have been called and the calling is not their own doing. It's not their own doing, but it's also by the doing of God. It's by the will of God. It's by the work of God. This calling is a true blessing. We should see it that way, that this calling is a true blessing. It's true and undeserved, and it's lavishly given by God. Starting in verse 4. Starting in verse 4, we see that you are chosen. You are chosen. Before God spoke a single thing into all of creation, he had you, if you're in Christ, written in a book, he chose you. 
Before the world was made, God foreknew you, and God elected you. Let this sink in. He chose you. Not because of anything in you. Not because you're special. But because God chooses according to his purposes for his own glory. He chose you for his purposes. In fact, that's what we see here. The second thing here we see is that what we're chosen for. It says we're chosen for what? Namely, that he would take unholy, he would take unholy and unrighteous people. He would take them and he would choose to make them holy. He would choose to make you who are unrighteous and me who is unrighteous, righteous. He would choose to take that which is unholy and make it holy by the work of Christ on the cross. It was the work of Christ that enabled that to happen. It was because of love, it says here. It was because of love in the heart of God for you that he chose you and he elected you to make you holy and blameless before him. Lavish, lavish love. Number three, he predestined. Predestined, this word means ordained or predetermined that you. It was predetermined that you would be not just chosen, but adopted into his family. You would be adopted into his family, his family of people, again, who were not righteous, but were now made righteous by the blood of who? None other than his beloved and treasured son. The sacrifice that God made in order to adopt you, this is what it means when he talks about the riches the riches of God is mentioned over six times in this book. The riches of God, the worth of the beloved son that was given so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be adopted, so that you could be grafted into his family, meaning this wasn't free. It wasn't free. It was, it was free to you and it was free to me. But it, was, it came at great cost, great, infinite priceless cost to God to adopt you, to take you from orphan to child, child of God. Verse 7 continues and tells us that we have this redemption. We have this redemption, meaning that we were enslaved. We were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, we were enslaved to the passions of our desires, we were enslaved to sin, and it led only to death, but he says, in Christ we have been set free from these things. So he not only chose us, he not only elected us, he not only adopted us, but he set us free from the very thing that was entangling us. In Christ we've been set free, in Christ we have forgiveness. We have forgiveness from our God. We have forgiveness from our creator. It is because of the work of Christ on the cross, God now looks at you who have faith in him and says, not guilty. You struggle with guilt. Look to the cross and the lavishness of God's love for you where he says, not guilty. Not guilty. But he's not done. He's not done. In verses 9 through 12, he also revealed to us an eternal hope. An eternal hope of our calling, namely that God will, in the end, sum up all things in Christ. He will sum up all things in Christ. He will establish this household order where Christ is at the head of all things and that everyone who believes in Christ, who has their faith in Christ, all in heaven and on earth, We'll have this new heaven and we'll have a new earth and a new kingdom as our inheritance with Christ as king. It's a glorious hope and a glorious inheritance. And again, it is an inheritance that you did not earn. It's just lavishly gifted to you. It's just lavishly gifted to you. And just in case you thought that was just too much for God to do, he keeps going. And you have also been gifted with the Spirit of Christ. You've been gifted not only 
with all of the blessings that have been mentioned so far, but now he's taken that old nature and he's put a new nature in you, namely his own. He's given you his nature. He sealed us in the spirit of Christ. He sealed us in the Holy Spirit and he sealed us in our position. He's like a, the spirit is mentioned, he's like a stamp. It's God's stamp on you, which is the guarantee that everything that's been mentioned so far is yours in Christ. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. Why did he do it? Maybe you're asking, why? You said there's nothing in me that's worth him doing this for. Why would God do something like this? Three times in this section alone, in verse 6, verse 14, and verse 12, Paul gives us the reason why God is so lavishly loving, especially to a people who don't deserve it. He says that God does it for the praise. He does it for the praise of his glory. Verse 6 tells us that tells us this. It says, so that we would bring praise to the name of Jesus. Praise what? His glory. But not just his glory. It's the glory of his grace. That we would, give, that we would bring praise to the glory of his grace. Meaning that the holiness and the, and the complete otherness of his grace. God's grace is unlike any grace you've ever given or any grace you've ever received it is other, it is holy, it is glorious, and we are to give praise to the magnitude and the glory of his ridiculous grace. It is ridiculous when you think about it. The fact that he would do these things, we are called to now magnify the magnitude of his grace. That's why he did it. It is these things, again, that Paul calls the riches of Christ. It is these things that are so worthy of praise. So I believe that Paul, he wants the church in Ephesus, and he wants us to consider. He wants us to consider and ponder and marvel that God has chosen you, that God has elected you. Marvel at these things. That he's adopted you, that he's redeemed you, he's granted you an inheritance that was not yours to have, and he's filled you with his spirit so that you would bring praise to his name from your lips and that you would cause other lips to praise him as well. This is why you exist. This is the mission Roger was talking about. When we think of the word called, we typically think of the phrase, am I called to be a pastor? When we think of the word called, we think, am I called to be a pastor? I don't know. Am I called to be a preacher? I don't know. Am I, how do you know if you're called to be an evangelist? That doesn't matter. What matters is that you are called. You are called. Each and every person in this room who has the spirit of Christ in you, you are called to something. So you, you, go, you go get plugged in and you exercise your gifts and then you realize maybe at that point you're called to whatever. But you are called. You are called to something. Namely the utilizing of your gifts. Every single one of us. Not all are called to pastors. Not all are called to preachers. But we are all called. Consideration two. Consideration two, consider, consider Paul's prayer now in light of the grace given to us. He starts in verse 15 and says, for this reason, for this reason, meaning because of all the grace given above and because of God's glories at stake, Paul prays. May we pray like this this year. May we pray like this this year. He prays. Number one, that we would be given a spirit of wisdom. A spirit of wisdom. Wisdom, that, wisdom is what, that which sees the world or has a worldview the way God views the world. That's wisdom. It sees things as they truly are. But more specifically here in this prayer, he wants, to, he wants us to have a wisdom 
that sees God as he truly is. He wants us to see God as he truly is, to know God intimately, not just about him, but to actually know him, his mind, his heart, his affections, what he desires in a personal way. He desires us to know God so that our hearts can be aligned with his. If you want your heart to be aligned with God, you need to know his heart. If you want to go the same direction that God is going, you need to know what direction he's going. If you want to know what direction God's going, you got, you got to know him. That's what Paul prays for, first and foremost. Number two, he prays that we would be given eyes to see the hope of our calling. Again, we've been called, we've been redeemed, we've been saved, and that is a secure and glorious hope. It's, it's secure, it's sure. He wants the church to know how secure they are in Christ. It's a surety. That's what it means to have hope. It's a sure thing. May we see the magnitude. May God give us eyes to see the magnitude of verses 1 through 14 and the great security and hope of our calling. Number three, he says, may we have eyes to see the vast richness of our future inheritance that is in Christ. Why? Because a future hope allows us to forsake all that we need to forsake so that we might fulfill our calling in the here and now. May we see the glorious future that awaits us. Lastly, he prays that we would know just how great the power of God is that is now in us via the Holy Spirit, which is power to fulfill and accomplish the calling. God has given us all we need. Everything we need. He goes on to to kind of uh, define this this power. He says it's the very power that raises Christ from the dead. The very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of, of the Father and put him in authority and majesty now is in you. This very power is now in you. Do you believe that? Is this some just kind of mythical idea that we just say is true but don't really believe it? Or is it really true? Do you need proof? Do you need proof? Well, consider consideration number three. Consider the power of the Spirit that raised you from the dead. Consider the power of the Spirit that raised you from the dead if you were in Christ. Chapter 2 begins with, and you were dead. And you were dead. He had just finished talking about how Christ was dead and the Spirit raised him to to life and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And now as evidence of that, he reminds us that we were dead in our sins. As evidence that that this Spirit now lives in us, he reminds us that we were dead also in our sins. Verse 2 says that there there was a Spirit in the world working, spirit in the world working that was creating sons of disobedience and we were just like them. Disobedient, dead in our sins. We were enemies of God. It says that we were children of wrath, desiring only the things of the flesh, just like the world, empty, dead, without hope, without meaning, without purpose. But God, by the power of that raised Christ from the dead, he raised you also. Creating new flesh, new desires, killing the flesh, giving you a heart of flesh that now beats for Christ, that beats for God, that now desires the things of God. That is a miracle. And if you think that happened by your own fleshly efforts, then you don't understand the power of the Spirit that worked in you to raise you from the dead. If your desires have changed, if your desires are, if you have new affections for Christ, if you desire to be like God, you have his spirit in you. Don't deny that fact. It's the truth. It is the spirit of Christ who causes us to see the treasures of Christ and love them. It is the spirit of Christ that causes us to see Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, and say, yes, yes, yes. Praise God for those things. 
And it is the Spirit of Christ that causes us to desire to be like Him. Paul's point here in in chapter 2 is that our salvation is by the work of the Spirit. It is by the work of the Spirit of God who not only regenerated our hearts, who not only gave us new hearts, new eyes, new affections, but also now indwells us and empowers us. To do what? Climb the corporate ladder? Win more ball games? Become more educated? What resolutions do you have this year that require the power of the Spirit? None of those things require the power of the Spirit. But to love God and to do what He's called you to do, that requires power from above. Verse 10 says, tells us the answer. Verse 10 tells us the answer. It says, we were recreated in Christ for good works. We are not saved by these works. We were saved unto these works. To do these things, works that God has planned, foreordained for you. You have been called to do very specific works. And he's empowered you that, with his spirit that you might walk in them this year and beyond. He's got work for us to do, and he's, he's given us the means to do it. He's given us a spirit that, is, like I've said, has given us new affections, new desires that should create new resolutions, new plans that we may walk in them. In other words, You've been gifted with power to obey the work God has called you to do. If you feel overwhelmed by the work God's called you to do, he's empowered you to do it. All by his grace. So consider number four. Consider number four. In light of the truth of God's grace in your life, consider also your new citizenship. Consider your new citizenship. In light of the work of God's work in your life and the work God has called you to do, Paul now moves on in verses 11 of chapter 2 through the end of the chapter, letting us know now where this work is to be done. So he doesn't just tell you to do work and to go figure it out. He actually tells you where it is to be done. Starting off in verse 11, he's telling them, this church in Ephesus, to remember, and this church in Ephesus is a, is a church of Gentiles. So he tells them to remember that they were far from God, far from understanding the old covenant, far from understanding the promises to Abraham, far from understanding who the true God was. But now, in Christ, they have been brought near. They were far, but now they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The promises that God gave to the Jews are now belong to the Gentiles who are in Christ. They've been granted and gifted access to these promises and are now grafted into the family of Abraham and therefore by faith in Christ. God has taken two people groups, Jew and Gentile, and created one new family. One new family. One new household. One new citizenship. One new kingdom. We see in verse 19, it says that the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. They're they're no longer these things, but are now fellow citizens with the saints. They too now are chosen in Christ and are of God's one household. He says that this household is a growing household. It is a growing household or a growing temple. If you remember that the temple was designed to be a place of praise and worship of the glory of God. It was where God's glory was made manifest and people went there to worship it and praise it. And so why did God lavish his grace on us? So that we would praise and bring praise of the glory of his grace. But not alone. Not alone. Not alone, but as a family as a family, as a church. Therefore, consider what this means. This means that God has purposely 
and intentionally taking you out of the world of unbelief and granted you a new family and work to do in this family. He has purposely and intentionally granted you a new family and work to do in this family, a family called the local church. May 2023 be about the work that God has for you as a citizen in his kingdom and as a member in his family in his local church, which is why we must look at Consideration 5. Consideration 5 from this book is this. Consider, therefore, consider your calling Consider this calling that we've been talking about and walk. Walk in a manner worthy of it. Chapter 3, all the way through the pretty much the end of the book, Paul begins to reveal his calling, which was namely to preach the riches of Christ and to reveal the purpose of the church and how God desires for it to function. So now we get to see that not only have you been called, elected, adopted, blessed, redeemed, filled, but placed into this body, and now we get to see how is this body supposed to function? How does it, work, how does it look to live according to your calling to be an active member in this body? Chapter 3 begins with, Paul says, for this reason. For this reason. And then you see, drop down to verse 14, it says, for this reason again. So Paul says, for this reason, then there's almost this parenthetical explanation of all this thing building up again to for this reason in verse 14, and he begins to pray in verse 14 of this chapter. But he's basically saying that because of all that has been said up to this point, because God has made two people groups into one new man in Christ, because of the new temple being built in the, in, as the church, because of these works of God in us, and because God has called Paul, for these reasons, Paul has dedicated his life to this calling, to the point of imprisonment, eventually to the point of death. He has dedicated his life to the revealing of these truths. Namely, again, the Gentiles are granted into the promises through Jesus, into one new body called the church. The mystery that Paul wants to reveal is the church. It is the blood-bought people of Christ called the church, called the local church. And people reveal, and but Paul reveals that also within this mystery, that within this mystery, the way this body is to function and what it is to accomplish. And so in verse 11, we see this. We see that God speaks, one, about eternal purposes. Eternal purposes. God's plan all the way from the beginning, before even he made a thing. God's plan was to display, to put on display his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his plan from the beginning. These are angels. These are angels. These are, these are can be considered both good or bad angels. But the bigger question is this, is how? How will he display this wisdom to them? Go up one verse to verse 10. Chapter 310, it says, through the church. It is through the church, through this new temple, through people who don't deserve all the blessings they've received, through that which looks foolish to the world but is the wisdom of God, through the praise of our lips, Angels will praise God. Think about that. Through the preaching of his word from our lips, by the faith of the saints, by the faith that is displayed, as Brian read earlier, in a, in a person of Christ who we don't see but we love. It brings glory to God. And it puts on display the manifold or vast wisdom of God, and it would be revealed to the angels in the heavenly places. Just to sum, let me just sum this up. What is God's plan for 2023? It's the same plan he's had since eternity past. Nothing's new for God. 
Nothing's new. His plan is to display his glory through the redeeming of sinful man. That's you and me. His plan is to display his glory through the redeeming of sinful man carried out by his son, Jesus Christ. And his will, what's the will of God? This is his will. His will is that the church, again, that's you and me, would be the agent by which he displays his wisdom to all of creation. Angels are just the the highest and loftiest beings that can see it. His, His will is that we would display his wisdom to all of creation. Wisdom that says God is holy. Other. Wisdom that says man is dead in sin. Wisdom that says Christ has made a way. Wisdom that says God is gracious and merciful and he lavishly gives to those who humbly take refuge in Christ. Wisdom that says humility is greatness. Wisdom that says weakness is strength. Humility that says that you, if you lose your life, you'll find it. The first will be last. The poor in spirit are blessed, and so on and so on. Wisdom that is so foolish to the world, but it brings God glory as we see mere sinful, insignificant people redeemed and changed and praising the one true God. It's the purpose of the church. It's the purpose of the church. This is God's plan. The church is God's plan. Is it yours? The church is God's plan for 2023 and beyond. Is it ours? Is it our plan? And so, like I said, in verse 14, Paul prays again. He prays again for this reason that we would see it that we would grasp this, that we would see and grasp and understand the love of Christ for you, the depths and the breadths and the widths and the heights of the love of Christ for you, and that you would see that God can do anything he wants, even in and through you. And so we see in chapter 4, this huge therefore. It is the therefore of the whole book. All that we've been reading up to this point is leading to this therefore. Therefore, we are called to consider our calling. We are called to consider our calling. Just as Paul has considered his calling as worthy of losing his life over, it says here he implores us. Don't skip over that word. Don't skip over that word, implores. It is the word kaleo. It means summon. It means to summon, to call. It is the same word Paul uses when he refers to his calling to be an apostle. Paul is imploring you by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is imploring you, calling you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul is saying this, therefore, just as I have seen the love of Christ, Paul has seen it And he's changed by it. Just as I've seen the love of Christ that has chosen and adopted and redeemed and blessed me with a future inheritance, causing me to give my life to the church, which is God's plan to reveal his wisdom, you also walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of your chosenness, worthy of your adoption, worthy of your redemption, worthy of the future hope that you have. It was all purchased by the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. You want to know the worth of your calling? That's its worth. It was purchased by the blood of the Son of God. Don't forsake it. Don't act as though it's meaningless. Don't act as though it has no worth. 
No, live as though the calling has so much worth to you. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of it. It means that your life should reflect or display to the world and one another the value of your calling. It's a glorious calling. Walk as though your call to be the church and to fulfill God's plan is worth more than anything to you. It was to Paul. The riches of Christ changed Paul. If you're in Christ, it's changing you. Don't suppress it. Lean into it. Pray as Paul prayed. Help me to see. Help me to see the love of Christ so that I can see my calling. I can understand my calling and give my life to it. It won't be a wasted life. You won't get to the end and say, man, I look at all the people in the world and all the things they get to do and I wish I'd lived that life. You won't be that way. You will not regret giving your life to the local church. I promise you, God promises it. Paul moves on in chapter four to show us what this looks like. He moves on to show us what this looks like. We are, we are to consider also the great spirit-given gifts imparted to each of us. The good works that God has planned for us to do, as mentioned in chapter 2, they are empowered by the gifts of the Holy Spirit now at work in us. And now he reveals that the Holy Spirit gives each of us special gifts. So now we have gifts, not just power, but actually gifts to use. What's the purpose of these gifts? Verse 12 tells us this, chapter 4, verse 12, to build up the body of Christ. To build up the body of Christ. This is how you serve the body of Christ. Use your gifts to build up the body of Christ. To build up this growing temple mentioned in chapter 2. And we do it by, by the Spirit as He works in us through our gifts in order to encourage and build up one another. The gifts mentioned in this chapter refer to pastor, and evangelist, and you may not be gifted with these things. But there are many gifts. There are many gifts from other books. There's the gifts of help, of helps. There's the gifts of service. There's the gifts of mercy. There's the gifts of exhortation and others. Other gifts that God has given, if you're in Christ and if you have his spirit, don't tell me you don't have any spiritual gifts. You do. You do. He's given each of us these spiritual gifts to use for one another. For one another. For this family that we are to be. Verse 14 tells us what will happen. Like you ever ask yourself, what would happen if everybody just used their gifts in the body? Like if everyone was just, okay, I'm devoted to the local church. I'm devoted to loving one another. I'm devoted to using my gifts. What would it look like? Verse 14 tells us, it looks like a group of grown men and women and children in the Lord who are not coasting through life. They're not just grabbed by the current of life and the deceptions of the world. They're not affected by the deceptions of the world, but they're steadfast, rooted like a tree in the ground in the truth of God's word, and nothing moves them. That's attractive to a very flowy world. That's attractive to those who God is calling out of that unsteady ground, a body of believers rooted in the truth. An assembly of called people who speak the truth to one another. Who aren't afraid to share the truth with a brother or sister in Christ. Continuously, 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 continuously pointing one another to the worth of our calling. To the worth of Christ. Again, causing the body to grow in Christ-likeness. 
and continue its mission of proclaiming the wisdom and the worth and the glory of God to all of creation. It all goes back to that. That's what it would look like. I want, I want each of us to see, like really see, as Paul praised, just how great and amazing it is that God would do that all that he has done. I highly recommend, if you don't do this yet, take a book like Ephesians or Philippians and just read it cover to cover like 10 times. Take a week where you're not dissecting one or two verses at a time, but take a week and just read it cover to cover and just look at the flow of thought. I, that, I did not intend to preach the whole book of Ephesians. I actually planned to start just in chapter 3. But then as I started to read the whole book for context, I was overwhelmed by God's glorious love and plan. So I wanted to share it. I want us to see how great and amazing God is for all that he has done for you and us. From choosing you, again, from choosing you, to adopting you, to redeeming you, forgiving you. you we don't deserve forgiveness. He forgave us. He, gave, he, he gives us an inheritance, a grand, glorious inheritance, and he empowered us with his spirit so that we can do what he's called us to do and be who he's called us to be. Namely, if you, again, if you're in Christ, he's called you to be a member, a joint, an eye, a mouth, a hand, a foot, a ligament in the local church where Christ is being proclaimed. That's your calling. Some of you may ask, I still don't understand. Like, how do I do that? How, how, do, I, how do I know my gift? I, I, just, I don't have time. I'm so busy with work, so busy with my family. Are you telling me I need to forsake my family and, and focus on the local church? No. But do, do hear this, though. Some of us, some of us need to reprioritize our time. Some of us need to reprioritize our goals. Some of us need to reprioritize our mission in life to realign it with God's. Some of us need to take inventory of our life, and as it says in chapter 5, 16, make the most of it, for the days are evil. It's so easy to get distracted. So easy to get pulled away from what God's called you to do and who he's called you to be. Some of us just need to get busy doing something. Just do something. Your gift will show up as you serve. Just get busy doing anything in the local church. Your gifts will show up. Some of us need to hear this too, though. Your family, your children, they are members of this body until proven otherwise. They are members of this body. And so when you exercise gifts of the Spirit at home in discipling your children, you are fulfilling your calling. You are. The family is, is the and is extension of this church. I'm not talking about serving just on Sundays and Wednesdays. I'm talking about fulfilling your calling as a member of the body of Christ. Your family is a part of the body. So when you serve your family, you are serving the body of Christ. You're serving well. But hear this as well. You need the rest of us too. You need the rest of us too. And we need you. Don't let the busyness of life, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, remove you from this body. You need us. We need you. We need your gifts. You need our gifts. When you're here on Wednesdays, whether you know it or not, gifts are exchanged. As we fellowship with one another, 
gifts are exchanged. As we study God's word together and share and interact, gifts are exchanged. When I talk to you afterwards and you're sharing with me your life and you're asking for prayer and we pray with one another, gifts are exchanged. And because of these things, I'm made a better dad, I'm made a better husband, I'm made a better employer, and I'm made a better preacher because of you. I need you. Don't remove yourself. Don't let the busyness of life remove yourself from the body. When you text someone that you're praying for them, and you really are praying for people, it's not just a text, you're exercising your gifts in the body. You are. It's not just what you do on Sundays or Wednesdays or Thursdays if you're meeting. It's what we do every single day as we do life together. When you show hospitality to one another, you are fulfilling your calling. When you encourage a brother or sister to keep fighting the fight of faith, when you see a brother or sister floundering in their faith, or they're discouraged in their faith, or they're discouraged for whatever reason, and you meet with them for lunch, and you encourage them, and you pray with them, you're fulfilling the calling of the body of Christ. Don't remove yourself from those situations. Pursue those situations. When you give your time to help us worship Christ here on Sunday, you're fulfilling your calling. Again, when you invite a brother or sister to lunch and share concerns and pray with one another, you're fulfilling your calling. When you are single or older and empty nested and you consider the kids in this, in this household part of your family and your kids also or your grandkids or your nieces, you're fulfilling your calling. When you forgive your brother or sister unconditionally, you fulfill your calling. When you love your wife like Christ loves the church, you're fulfilling your calling. When you submit to your husband, you are fulfilling your calling. When you obey your parents' kids, you are fulfilling your calling. When you pursue people in the body the way God has pursued you, you are fulfilling your calling. You don't have to be an evangelist to fulfill a calling. You just have to be spirit-filled, using your gifts to build up one another. And in that way, the love of Christ is shown and the wisdom of Christ is shown to the whole world. Don't remove yourself from the body. Pursue one another. Love one another. What has God called you to this year? Hopefully you have the answer to that now. Does your current plan align with God's? I hope so. Are your goals built on the sand of the world or on the rock of Christ and his truth revealed to us today? Will you recognize the worth of your election, the worth of your adoption, and walk in a manner worthy of it? Look around the room today. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are all here to help you do this. We are all here to help you do this, and we need you to help us do and fulfill this great and glorious calling. Amen. Let's pray.